The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show, everyone. Great to have you along. We've got a great uh, conversation ahead of us tonight. Going to be talking to Michael Galliardi, who has experienced or did experience a very terrifying possession story. A very, it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to get into the details of it. I'm not going to tell you about it. Uh, I'll let him do that. But it relates to his childhood and his family. And it affects him today. He's written a book about it called Devil Take the Hindmost. And we're going to talk about the book, his experiences, plus what he's doing now to help other people who may be suffering from the same things. So, again, Michael Galliardi will be our guest tonight. Looking forward to that conversation. Welcome to everybody in our chat rooms as we start to uh, gather here. I noted that uh, we've had some questions already in our YouTube chat room about what is going on with the other program's YouTube stream. And I'll tell you what, that is a terrific question. Now, the other show I'm talking about is my other program called The Independence Gang, it's a show that uh, focuses on political discussion, and uh, as most of you already know, we were suspended from YouTube. <laughs> so it's the funniest thing. I take a vacation, and three minutes into the first show that I'm not there, Britt is running it, Britt Griffith, who's the co-host of that program, running it by himself, uh, and we end up with a suspension as a result. Three minutes in, two minutes in, maybe. The first thing he did, we end up with a, res- with a suspension. But either way... Uh, it was supposed to be a week, which would have ended it uh, uh, like Tuesday evening. And here we are on Thursday, and I just tried it just to see if I could access it, and it still says we're suspended. So I don't know, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what what the deal is. Maybe they calculate their week. Maybe if you're in the start in the middle of the week, it's the rest of that week and all of another week. Who knows? We're going to try it again tomorrow night, and if uh, you know if it doesn't, we'll just be on the backup channels. We're finding that we really like this Foxhole platform. It's uh, there's no censorship. It's a First Amendment sanctuary, and it, uh, they have a really great audience. I mean, the, the people that that watch programming there are patriotic. They are committed, and they're interested. So uh, that is going to be a strong platform for us eventually. But ultimately, what we'll be doing, I think, it'll be YouTube, Twitch, and Foxhole, and then the Rumble channel, and the U- Roku channel. We'll get the program uploaded to it uh, uh, the following day, basically. So that's the plan. But we need the YouTube channel to come back. Until it does that, I don't really know, you know, what to say, other than we will be on Twitch tomorrow night if there's no YouTube, and we will be on Foxhole tomorrow night if there's no YouTube. So anyway, that's what's going on with the Independence Gang. Regardless, I'd love to have you subscribe to any and all of these channels. We have... We have... uh, uh, Beyond Reality on YouTube, which many of you are watching now. Please make sure you subscribe and like the video. Also, we were on Twitch Live. I know we've got some folks over there hanging out with us, too. It's it's relatively new for us on Twitch, so if you could follow and, um, yeah, if you, if you want to subscribe, that'd be great, too. If you've got a Prime account, Amazon Prime, you can subscribe to any the Twitch channel and not have it cost you anything. So we'd appreciate if you would do that as well. And, uh, of course, the podcast version of the show continues to do, do fantastically. And thank you to all our podcast listeners. And I know you're used to four programs a week. That's what we've been doing for years. In fact, we just passed our fifth anniversary of this show um, going uh, syndicated. And, of course, we've made changes in the last year. But either way, uh, you're used to the program having new uh, content four days a week. And uh, since I started the second show, I've had to cut it back. So I apologize for that. Please know that we'll continue to produce the uh, the new content, although it will be on a, a, a slowed down uh, schedule for a while until we get a rhythm with the other show as well. So, and I get a producer for the other show that would help a lot. But um, we will continue to have these great discussions. Like, uh, what was it Tuesday night? We had Jen Ward on. What a fantastic discussion! And talking about somebody who lived through hell most of her life and turned it around to make it something positive. That was a terrific story. If you didn't get a chance to hear that interview. You know, go back and and find it on the podcast platform or the uh, YouTube channel, or even Roku because we're there too with the with Beyond Reality, and uh, you can check out that interview with Jen Ward because that was a, a very inspiring story. And I imagine tonight's will be the same. So I'm looking forward to that. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we will uh, begin our conversation. Mike Galliardi, our guest tonight, author of the book Devil Take the Hindmost, and it's an account of his uh, what is a rather scary 
and harrowing story of dealing with possession in his family. And that'll be tonight's discussion on Beyond Reality. We'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter. And we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Follow me on Facebook. Go to JVJ Paranormal. You'll find my Facebook page. Please give it a follow. Keep people updated there as to what's going on with this program and other projects that I'm working on. Uh, Also, subscribe to this program everywhere you can. YouTube, Twitch, the podcast version of the show. And we have a uh, Facebook page as well, Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. We've got a fantastic conversation tonight. I'm looking forward to hearing this story. Michael Galliardi has written a book called Devil Take the Hindmost, and it's basically his story. He lived through a rather difficult, and that's putting it mildly, mildly childhood uh, as it relates to a possession in his family. And I'm not going to tell the story. I'm going to let him tell the story. Michael, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here on uh, on the radio and uh, be able to tell tell my story and and share it. It's good therapy. I want to start kind of backwards here, and uh, I know that uh, you know we're going to get into the details of what happened to you and what you experienced right. for many many years as a child. Uh, it affected you greatly. It affects you to this day, but it's also put you on a path where you're uh, helping people, others who have had similar experiences. Give us a sense of what you're doing now. Obviously, you're writing books because we're going to be talking about the book you've written. Um, but what are the things you're doing that these experiences led you to that uh, help others? Well, I'm, I'm currently, in fact, I was writing today. I'm on my second book. Uh, which is Devil Take the Hindmost Part Two, the Hindmost Aftermath, and uh, um, I'm also a speaker. Uh, I speak on paranormal and demonology uh, because of my past experiences. I've I've done an extensive amount of research in uh, in the biblical issues, in uh, languages, uh, his, history. Uh, I've researched every demonic possession case from the third century or first century on and uh that's basically uh what really got me going on this uh as a speaker to uh, you know bring people answers because a lot of people just really are not sure what it is they're afraid to talk about it i know i was uh you know it was a strange situation for me but uh, uh there are people dealing with these kind of things nowadays, and nobody really wants to talk about it, not even in the churches. People want to talk about uh, these deep issues. I mean, they're disturbing. They're, you know, they're on all levels of humanity, you know, disgusting and weird, and people just don't want to be a part of it. So I like to bring that to the light and and talk to people about this. And I've had a number of people come to me, usually online, uh, and I work through problems with people online and when I go speak. I have a number of people that contact me, and, and uh, you know, when you've got a story like this, you know, people take you for real. I mean, you know, they think if your story's worse than theirs, then you can help them through that, and I guess that's the, the grace of it all. Is, is to be able to help others uh, because 
you know, I know that there are other people going through the same thing, and people are just afraid to talk about it. I mean, it's just recently that people have been talking about, you know, sex slaves in America and yeah. things like this. But it has been going on for decades, and just because people aren't willing to go that deep and to talk about things like that. So uh, I've made myself an advocate and a poster boy. Uh, for it. It's been unwillingly for the last 30 or 40 years, but I'm ready now. I'm finally able able to talk about it. I mean, I still have blackouts from my severe PTSD, and, uh, you know, I deal with it. And it really helps a lot of people deal with, deal with things that are PTSD-related. Even, you know, my experience, I mean, at one point, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, excuse me, wanted to have me talk with a psychiatrist who was uh, dealing with uh, POWs that killed children in Vietnam and, and, and stuff like this. And uh, they said that's the only way they could relate it was from the PTSD issue. So I, I talked to a lot of people that deal with PTSD that ask me, well, how do you deal with it? And how are you getting by? And and, you know, how are you – because most people that have PTSD are faking life. They really are. They're just, you know, they're broken on the inside. They're walking around in shattered pieces, but really maybe on the outside they're not showing it. So that's that's definitely something that uh, I, I've thrown myself into is helping people. And helping others is a great therapy. I mean, it is a great therapy when one person finds someone else that they can relate to. Because in this business of what we're talking about, it's very few and far between, and it alienates you to the point of, to the point of, of, of disaster where you feel like there's no one on earth that can relate to your story, and it destroys you at, at, at all points, in mentally, you know, emotionally, and then those things take a physical toll on you, and uh, it, it's very hard to to be social. It's very hard to, you know, believe it or not, I'm a speaker nowadays, <laughs> yeah. which is very interesting, but I really enjoy it. I enjoy speaking because, you know, it's just like when, when teachers talk to children and they see that light going, that light go on. I know that somebody's they got it. They understand. They don't feel alone anymore. They feel like they can relate to somebody now. And that's, that's been the great joy and uh, the great therapy for me. So, well, I, you know, I, there there are a lot of people that study th- these types of occurrences and um, this phenomenon. Yes. There are a lot of people that talk about it. A lot of people that write about it. But I suppose, unless you've actually experienced it, you can't connect the, at the same level with someone else who's experienced it. So, if you're one of these Absolutely. people, if you're one of these people that has, have experienced it, and you're looking for help, you know, you can you can you can talk to all the academics in the world, all the medical professionals in the world, but until you connect with someone who can truly, at a visceral level, uh, understand what you went through because they went through it themselves, until you find that person. You probably feel like the loneliest person in the world. That you you, you hit it on the head. <clears throat> I mean, that's really that's really where it leaves you. It leaves you in this barren tundra, with no one around you who can understand. And finding somebody that can relate relate you know a story or an experience or a feeling. I mean, what I went through, I've got feelings that most people you know, don't have. I saw things, I heard things that mo- to most people are either ridiculous or terrifying, you know, and to try to talk to somebody about that that doesn't have those experiences is just absolute ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculousness. They, they just don't get it. In fact, I've had psychologists that have just told me, psychiatrists that have just told me, you know what, I, I can't deal with this. This is This is above me. It's too much. It's overwhelming. You know, find someone else, you know, and that kind of rejection is is very difficult to deal with. It has to be very, very difficult to deal with. Again, we're going to get into your story in a few minutes here. But um, 
you know, to hear you talk about this and talk about the way you're you're taking your experiences and and kind of processing them to the point where you can actually assist other people who might be going through the same things. Uh, that in itself is quite a Herculean task because you could just kind of curl up in the figurative fetal position and go through the rest <laughs> of your life, you know, basically cowering in the corner. Uh, yes. You've decided to take a different approach. Was it, was that decision, was it deliberate or did some, did, did, do you feel like it was a, a kind of a destiny for you to actually take these experiences and use them to help others? Well, you know, for, you know, this happened 40 years ago. I'm, I'm 53 now, 54 um, and you know that in that time stretch, I just wanted to forget about it. In fact, I I left my country at 19, came to America, slept on the beach, was homeless. I would just anything to get away from it, sure. you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, after 30, 40 years, <clears throat> you know, I just I couldn't talk about it. I didn't want to deal with it. But now, you know, now I've I've come to the point where and you know oddly enough I, I wrote the book over covid because i had i'm a musician by trade and of course you know we were the first the industry out oh, yeah mm-hmm. so i had nothing to do so i said you know what i had started the book and i had primarily started the book just for a legacy for my kids so that my kids could know hey this is what i went through you know and my grandkids i actually have five grandkids oh wow you know yeah, and then, you know, at that point, once I got going into it, you know, I kind of showed my wife and you know, I showed one of my one of my daughters who's 30 and she said she said, "Dad, you got to you got to finish this book and put it out there." So, I decided to to finish it and uh and uh, put it out there and you know, it's been 40 years and I'm finally now able to talk about it. And it wasn't I wasn't able to talk about it because I wrote it because they always tell you, you know, if you write it, you know, it's therapy. Yeah. But the therapy came from being able to talk about the book after it was done and do interviews like this and get up and speak about it, go places and speak about it. That's what gave me the, the most therapeutic feeling about it. Because when you look in someone's eyes and they're looking at you with, either with compassion or just they believe you that you know that is a connection right there and you feel that support and that is support that I've never had I had no family no family bonds whatsoever you know so I've, I I mean I was doing my own laundry at nine years old <laughs> <laughs> excuse me so I've been on my own forever ever since I can ever since I can remember you know, so my dad was an absentee father. He didn't really want to deal with it. And uh, that's just I'm just ready now to to talk about it. I feel good enough and and I feel like I've got enough weight on the other side to balance it out now where I'm able to talk about this. So do you think there's a healing energy that comes from, say, standing in front of an audience and talking about these experiences, an audience of people that are actually interested, actually empathetic, and actually uh, sincerely uh, curious about the events and, and, and probably also wishing and, and sending some type of energy to you for your healing. Do you think that that's part of the process too? Well, you know, there's two groups of people that I speak to. I speak to secular crowds and I speak in churches. And the secular crowds are always interested in you know the the nitty gritty details you know of the other side right and and the church the church people the christian people that i talk with uh they're interested in knowing that you know who the enemy is you know the battlefield the the logistics of it you know it's it's very interesting the two different uh, philosophies you get but both highly interested uh, in the subject, and uh, both sides compassionate. So it's it's a very interesting combination, and I love speaking to all different kinds of groups. It's really it's really interesting. Well, let's let's rewind the clock here. Let's let's talk about what happened to you. What you know, we've been alluding to it uh, for fifteen minutes yeah. now. So let's actually talk about what happened. First of all, 
this started for you as a child, right? This is when yes. it really happened. So, so op- open up this story for us. Well, you know, the very first things that started happening, I was probably, uh, that we're talking 1971. Um, I was three years old. And, you know, my mother, <clears throat> she was never... Never a person that I can remember. My sister—I have a sister who's seven years older, so she was able to fill in a few of the gaps for me. But uh, she was never a loving mother. She didn't talk to us. She didn't. There was nothing there. But my sister said that before I was born, because she's seven years older, it was different. So by the time I came, a little after that. Things started to get weird, and I even noticed it at, at three years old. She had joined uh, a Jehovah's Je- the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's when things began to get a little weird at that point. It wasn't too bad at that point, but, you know, I was little. But the first thing that happened to me is I, I remember so clear, even today. I mean, it was, you know, 50 years ago. But uh, the very first event that happened— was that, uh, you know, we, we, we're an Italian family, so every day, you know, for lunch, we'd have pasta vasule, you oh, know, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I'd go to the, yeah, you know, a little star soup, sure, you know, yeah. the better translation. Yeah. My, mother was, you know, my mother was born in Italy. I grew up in an Italian household, so I'm very, very familiar with what you're talking so about. So you're very familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's like the macaroni and cheese kind of deal of America, that's you right, know, for yes. Italians. <laughs> so every day she would call me to the table and the soup would always be on the table, and I'd come to the table. This one time, she called me to the table. I sat down at the table. It wasn't there. And then she came up behind me, uh, you know, on the side of me, and dumped scalding hot soup all down my shoulder. Oh, wow. And I screamed, and I screamed. I was three, three and a half, more like three and a half. And uh, she had no emotions whatsoever. She picked me up. She called the taxi. We sat in the taxi. She never touched me or nothing. And we went to the doctor and I don't remember anything after that, but I do remember that she never consoled me, never touched me and never said a word. So that was the beginning of of things getting weird. And and then by the time I was five years old, uh, we had moved from the, we lived in the Toronto area in Canada and Ontario. We moved a hundred miles away to a little town. And when we got there, uh, weird things started happening. She, she started to talk about uh, she started to talk about uh, you know seeing little people running around the house and crazy crazy notions like this. And you know I didn't think much of it. You know I thought maybe she was joking or whatever. But my sister started to become very uh, disturbed by this, and it got worse. And it got worse. And then she started, you know, talking to herself. And then she started having conversations with herself. And then she tried to kill the cat. And then, oh, geez. And that, yeah. And then it, every year it began to escalate, escalate to the point where one day I got called out of school. Uh, and, you know, they took me home. And my next door neighbor was in the car and he was telling me, well, something happened at the house. And I was maybe 10, 10 or 12 years old at that point. And uh, they said something happened at the house, and they took your mother away. And I was like, well, what happened? And my sister was there, and what had happened was I, I being the lazy kid, you know, you know, Canada, if you live on the East Coast, you know, in America, so you have a mud room. So you've got multiple doors, right? Sure. It was springtime, and I left all the doors open except for the one screen. My mother had chased my sister with a butcher knife and was going to kill her. She went to strike at her, came running at her with a butcher knife, and she ran out the door only because I left all the doors open, and she ran around the car screaming until the neighbor saw and then called the police. Oh, wow. And that was the first time they took took her away to the mental institution. And then I asked my sister, I said, what happened? She said, she said that she was in the kitchen. My mother was in the kitchen, and she was in the living room watching TV, just standing there. She walked into the room, and she said that my mother said from afar, they told me that you're a witch, and I've got to kill you. So that's kind of what happened. Now, three months later, 
she ends up back at home. Now, don't even ask me how that happens. But, you know, we're talking, you know, late 70s, late 70s and the early 80s in a small town in Canada. Right. You know, if that happened nowadays, you just social services would be all over it. Anyway, when she had come home within a few days, it all started again. And she started to get worse, progressively worse. And within a couple of years, she was she was spent all her days sitting in a chair, whistling like crazy, singing songs at the top of her lungs, hitting herself with a big log across her chest for seven or eight hours a day without stopping and talking in different voices from one to another, quickly changing and changing voices. And this went on for so long. My sister left when she turned 16, 17. She left. So she left me there, and my father was in, was working 100 miles away, so he was gone five, six days a week. So this got so crazy. She was doing this all day long, and then soon as night came, she started to go in her room, and I had already for a number of years been sleeping with a hockey stick and a dresser drawer filled with bricks against the door every night. And I slept in the same position in a bed where my knee and my hip and my shoulder made holes into the mattress for a dec- for a decade. Oh, wow. And I would not move. And all night long, I could hear banging and like three people wrestling in her room. And then she'd scream bloody murder. She'd be screaming and then walking down the hall, laughing her head up, whacking herself. I could hear her, foot, 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 whacking herself with a, she'd have a, you know, a log and a boot. She'd whack herself in the head with the boot and then with the, uh, with the, uh, with the log. So this went on day after day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it never stopped. Even when I would go away and not come back for two days, I would come and park my bike in front of my house. I could hear the thuds from outside and her laughing and, and swearing and, and talking in voices, multiple voices, you know, arguing, you know, like there were several people, you know. And I would walk into the house, and she was absolutely oblivious that I was there. There were times where I got so fed up with it. I would stand right in front of her and clap my hands and scream at her to shut up. And she was, wasn't faced. She'd be looking right through me. So th- this, this maniacal, crazy stuff went on every day for years until one day it, it all came to a head. You know, she would be screaming at night. I hated nights. And I, like, even right now at 53 years old, when I lay my head down, I shake so bad until my medication kicks in because I, my face goes numb and I wake up with my face numb and shaking is what wakes me up because the medication wears off. That's how traumatic this was. It was as if she never slept. I never seen her sleep growing up from when I was three years old to, to 18, you know, 17, 18, when that was the last that I was in the house. And this crazy stuff went on, and she was obsessively eating everything in the house like an animal. I mean, shoving stuff in her face, not even chewing, but food on her mouth. You know, and let me try to give you a picture here of what this woman looked like. She was five feet tall, probably 280 pounds by now. All her teeth in her mouth were all rotten. Mm. She would she would wag her tongue back and forth at me, like with her mouth open, and the, she had ridges all along the side of her tongue, like a snake. It was it was so weird, and she had long greasy black hair, and she wore ripped clothes, and she wore the same clothes for a decade, and this maniacal stuff never stopped. It went on every night, the screaming, the banging. I didn't even know what the banging was. I, one night I, she was screaming, and I was out you know, in the living room watching hockey because, you know, we're Canadians, so we watch hockey. <laughs> right. Even in situations like this, we still watch hockey. <laughs> so I ran into the room, 
and she was huffing and puffing, lying on the bed, saying that Satan was jumping on her chest. And I hightailed it out of there because I believed her, and the screaming continued, and then the banging. I was trying to figure out. I would run into her room at times to see what the hell the banging was all about, because it sounded like, you know, this sounds like if you've got somebody upstairs and you've got three kids wrestling. Yeah. And people are hitting the floor and hitting the walls. That's what it sounded like. It sounded like there's three people in there wrestling. And the second I'd open the door, she'd just be lying there in bed with her eyes in a trance. And I couldn't snap her out of it. And I'd just close the door and walk away. I mean, it was it was just craziness. So one, one time, I, th- this was coming down, I think I was around 16, um, my father had to resort to putting all of our food, because we bartered for all kinds of Italian cheeses and all this kind of stuff. We had this all in our freezer downstairs. He had to put a chain on it because she was eating everything in the house like an animal. Well, she wasn't even like a person. She was like an animal. She was exploding. Her weight was exploding. And I happened to come down to the basement from the outside, and there's there's two ways into the basement, from from inside the house and from outside the house. And I was coming down to the basement from outside the house. And I, as soon as I walked in, I saw her hacksawing the lock off the, off the uh, freezer. And I went, I went, hey. I mean, I didn't even know what to do. I just said, hey. She turned around, snarled at me like an animal. She looked at me with these piercing black eyes. And then she ran up the stairs. Well, by this time in my life, I was, you know, and this may sound weird, but I was attracted to the fear. I just wanted to get it over with. Mm. If you're going to kill me, kill me. Get it over with. And this particular time was really unprecedented. So I followed her upstairs, and she slammed her bedroom door. And I went to open the door, and the, the handle wouldn't move, and she was up against the door, and I couldn't press the door. And I could hear her behind the door like heavily breathing and, and <laughs> like this, snarling. And I was like, what the hell? And I was terrified, but I was drawn to it. I was like, we got to get this over with. You know, if she's going to kill me, let's get it over with right now. I, I can't tell you what that experience was like to be drawn to it, but I was. And I kept on shaking the door handle and nothing, nothing. And I kept doing it and she wouldn't talk to me. She just kept snarling, and and I couldn't even budge the door. So then I just stood there for a minute, quiet, and then I, I could hear her leave the pressure off the door because, you know, the door would creak a little bit. So I decided to wait a minute and open the door. When I opened up the door, I swung the door. It, it opened from the inside, so I swung the door inside. She was standing far enough away for the door to swing open. She was waiting for me. She looked at me. We met our eyes. I got really close. Her eyes were just black. She had no pupil. Mm. She had no nothing. They were just black marbles. And the left side of her head was bulged and pulsating. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it, she was disfigured. Yeah. Yeah, the left side of her face, of her, of, of her eyebrow and her forehead was disfigured and pulsating from side to side. And she lunged at me. And soon as she lunged at me growling, you know, with, and baring her teeth. At that moment, I turned around. I was horror-stricken, and I ran outside. She ran after me, but by the time I got outside, um, she wasn't after me when I was outside. And, and then I heard the door slam. I mean, it slammed so hard, I, I heard the suction from all of the windows open, you know, and it was just <laughs> went through the whole house. I was standing in the driveway, and I was going like this. <laughs> I, I couldn't even say one word. I was in complete shock. And I didn't know what to do. And I stood out there for 10 minutes, and I still couldn't say a word to myself. So what I did was I opened back the doors. Our phone was right inside 
you know, after the mudroom it was the living room, and mm-hmm. it was just right inside the door. So I opened up the door really quick and ran back, making sure she wasn't there. And I, I grabbed the phone, and we had a long cord, and I took the phone outside to the porch, and I closed the doors, and I, I knew where my dad was. So, I, you know, we had to dial up, you know, the rolled rotary phone. Right, sure. And I, Yeah, and I was trying to dial the number where my dad and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, my hand was shaking so bad I couldn't get my fingers in the holes. And it took me probably 15 or 20 minutes to dial the number. And when I got my dad on the phone, I, I still, after a half an hour, 40 minutes, I couldn't say one word. I was just, <laughs> you know, I was going like this. And, and he just said to me, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, I just said, mom, 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 mom. And he said, okay, I'll be right there. So within maybe 10 minutes, <coughs> he shows up in the driveway, and he tries to talk to me, and I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm in utter shock. Right. I can't even, I can't even say one word. He, he goes into the mudroom, and I'm right behind him. As soon as he enters the door, once again, that door swings open into the living room, he opens the door, and there my mother is standing there. She's only five feet. My dad was five eight. She grabbed him, threw him to the ground while growling the whole time, threw him to the ground, jumped on him, and started scratching and tearing at his face. My dad could not get her off. I tried to pull her off. I couldn't get her off. They started rolling around, and my dad got up. He was able to get up, and he ran outside, and I ran out after him. And then once again, we heard a door slam, and you know it vacuumed the whole house. My dad now was in absolute shock. He was standing outside. He couldn't talk. His hands were shaking so bad that I could see them. Both of his hands were trembling. They weren't shaking. They were trembling. And he, don't, he doesn't know what happened. And we've never talked about it to this day. But he was in absolute shock, too. And then within 45 minutes or so, I think he went over to a neighbor's and he called the police. And then they brought out the mental institution again. And she, they put her in a straitjacket. And she was perfectly calm both times, by the way. Mm. And that, th- those were just two times. We, we had the police at our house probably 20 times and the fire department. Uh, a dozen times because she would put all of our things into the fireplace and burn everything that we owned. Everything that we, I never had toys growing up. I didn't have clothes. I didn't have anything because she burned everything in the fireplace Mm. and she'd set the fire, the, the chimney on fire. And then sometimes into the attic and the fire department would come and be trying to put out the, the fire and all of this happening. And no social services never came. You know, nobody said anything. You know, a little town of 4,000, you know, in in uh, eastern Ontario, you know, northeastern Ontario, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, social services never came. No one came. And it wasn't until it wasn't until they took her away that I was able to go somewhere else and then leave. By the time I turned 18, I left and went to California and was homeless underneath the Santa Monica Pier. So that that's basically my life in a nutshell with without many details. But all I can say is you know, the part about my mother, it never stopped. I would go away for five, six days at a time, roll in on my bike. You know, the windows would be open because it's summertime, mm-hmm. and I could hear the thuds. I could hear the thuds and the the laughing, hysterical laughing and the maniacal talk. You know, I mean, I was a kid and I didn't understand a lot of what she said, but I believe a lot of it was foreign languages because today I'm a foreign language enthusiast and I speak some German, French, Italian, Spanish, a uh, little uh, uh, Mandarin. And it was it was recalling all of these things that molded my life into wanting to research things and understand how things work 
and understand who she was. And I researched for 15 years every exorcism case that I could find from the first century on. I was familiar with the language that she spoke, the, the gait in which she spoke. I could understand the scatological use of words, which means uh, scatology is a lot of demons talk in scatology, which is they're always blaspheming and using the word crap and shit and stuff like that all the time. E everything is referred to as that. And I looked at all the transcripts, and then, like a detective, I lined everything up on a board, and I said, and I looked at all her characteristics, and then all the characteristics from every exorcism that I could ever get my hands on, all of the transcripts, everything, the Annalisa Michelle case, the Roland Doe case, she had them all. She had this stuff similar, like the whistling and the the singing, like the Roland Doe case singing hymns at the top of her lungs. She knew songs. You know, she'd sit there and listen to the public radio station on TV and just sing and whistle and then, you know, break out into these crazy, maniacal conversations, you know. And it never ended. It never ended. And at night, the screaming began and the pounding. And it never stopped. It never stopped. I became a thief because I had to eat. I stole out of gardens. I stole from school. I stole money. I mean, it, it completely changed me as a person. I wasn't even able to talk on the phone until I was, oh my gosh, maybe 25. My wife that I met at 19, she had to do all my phone calls for me because I couldn't talk on the phone. I was the guy who was so shy and so in the back. And now I'm a speaker and I'm a musician. I'm out in front of in public all the time. So it's very, very crazy life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to say the least, very. to say the least, Michael, I've got so many questions about the story oh, you just told us. First of all, can you tell us what the what ended up happening to your mother? I mean, the story probably doesn't end when they took her away in the straitjacket that time. No. She, I left for California from Toronto, from uh, XYZ Airport. I left there, I think, four days before Easter Sunday in 1987. When I came to Los Angeles, I was staying with somebody. I gave some friends of mine my phone number. Two weeks later, they called me and said, your mother died. Uh -huh. And they said, well, that's not the only thing. They said, your mother died, but she died two weeks ago because they found her because of the smell in the apartment. The people next door smelled the decomposing body. So they worked it out, and they told me it's probably likely she died on this day. That day that they said that she died on was the day I left. Oh, wow. So, so it was like the mission was complete. You know, the, the, the demonic uh, activity ran its full course. She was dead. I was gone. You know, and my sister had gone and fleed, fleed long time before that, and she won't even talk about it even to this day. Do you? Even her kids don't even know. Yeah. Do you? Do you know? What, did they have an official cause of death for your mom? Did they give it a physical? Uh, yes. Cause. Yes. She had a heart attack, and they said that she had atherosclerosis. She was forty-six. Wow. But like I told you, she ate like an animal. Yeah. Until she was morbidly obese, and that's what killed her. You now, know, as opposed to the Annalisa Michelle case, where the demons wouldn't let her eat, right? And she died of starvation. You see. Now, so, what about? Go ahead. Your, I know you want to. Yeah, no, it's okay. What about your father? Uh, you you didn't really bring him into the the events much until that time that you had that confrontation with your mother and ended up calling him, he came home, and basically she attacked him. What was going on with your father during the years leading up to that? Did he notice anything? Did he ever uh, have uh, any reason to fear, or was it, was, was, there a, was it calmer when he was around? Uh, no, it, it escalated when he was around. That's when she prophesied. She told him everything she was, he was doing. 
and she told me things that I was doing when I was out. And we were like, oh, my God, how, how the hell does she know those things? He, I mean, I talk about this in the book. My, my dad is an interesting guy. He grew up in, the, in World War II, fourth grade education, came to this country, didn't, came to Canada, didn't speak very much English. He was a complete absentee father. He was away six days of the week, came home for a few hours, and then was gone. Yeah. So he was never there. And the hours that he was there, my mom would say her crazy stuff, and he would just ignore her, and then he'd only be home for an hour, and then he'd be gone because he was an avid fisherman. So when he was home, he'd go fishing, and then he'd go back down to Toronto, which was 110 miles away, and he slept down there for six days. So he was never there, never there. And we don't talk about it to this day either. Your father's still alive? Yes, he is. He's 80, 88 years old. Yeah, and he's still alive, and we still don't talk about it. I can't put him through it. He knows that I messed up. He knows that I messed up, you know, and that uh, I was very affected by what he saw, but he has no grapple on the depth of it because I was there every day, you know, for years, and he was absent. So he doesn't understand. Was there there anybody else around, any other adults, you being a child uh, for most of this, were there any other adults, neighbors, relatives, anybody that uh, would would visit or maybe they didn't talk to you about it, but you could see a hint of concern in their face? Do you remember anything like that? Um, That's a great question, Jay. Um, Our family, when we moved 100 miles away, never came to see us. They completely abandoned us, and that's when mom started to change. They completely abandoned us. But check this out. The neighbors on my street were the same neighbors from the day we moved in to the last day that we lived there. They were all the same people. And my mother would go and knock on their door, and when they would answer the door, she'd say to them in a, in a raspy voice, I'm going to cut your head off oh, and then wow. walk away. And, you know, we got the cops out there all the time. But interestingly enough, I'll tell you this story, that in 2005 was the first time I went back to my town that I grew up in. And I pulled up. I mean, I had two kids. They were, you know, young, 10 and 12. Um, My wife was with me. We were just kind of walking around. And then this it's too much like a movie. Everybody from in their houses came out to meet me. Because they recognized me. Oh, wow. You, you know, here I am, you know, a grown man now, yeah. and they recognized me. And everybody on the street came out, all the adults, and they said, Michael, so good to see you again with a family that you made. You know, what happened? It wasn't right. It was horrible. It was terrible, you know. And we actually have pictures of it with the people all surrounding me coming out and hugging me and and because they went through it as well. They heard the screaming. They, you know, they were terrorized by her. They saw the police. And, you know, this is a tiny town in, in Canada. It's very quiet. You know, nothing goes on, you know. And right. they came out. Everyone from the whole street still lived there from when I lived there from kindergarten. And they came out and they met me on the street and they supported me. And it was the most incredible thing that... They went through this with me, but didn't know it. I didn't know it, you know, until they told me that day. Michael, you know? Michael, there's, you know, the problem with a lot of possession stories, not stories themselves, but possession uh, cases, I guess, is the better way to say it. The problem is that some people can't determine the line between true mental illness and actual yes. actual demonic possession. At what point yes. were you able to delineate that and determine that your mother's case was, in fact, demonic in nature and not a mental illness case? Well, it wasn't until years later, it wasn't until in my 40s, when I started to say, you know, I'm going to recall this. And then when I started studying all the exorcism cases, like I said, you know, like detectives do, they put the pictures of the suspects all on the wall, and then they start to draw linear lines. And, well, that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And once I studied all the cases, I began to see, oh, my God, look at all the similarities, the, the prophesying, the different languages, the distorted voice, the distorted face, the, the black eyes, the, you know, the telling things that she, that she shouldn't know because I was 50 miles away. 
you know, and, you know, all of those things, the language. I've heard all of the tapes of the Annalise Michelle case. I've listened to them all a hundred times. In fact, I've learned to speak German because I've listened to them so many times. I could hear the familiarity in the gate of the voices. I could hear the pronunciation, even though it's in German, even though it's in German. I could hear the thought processes. I could hear the hate. I could hear all of that extremely familiar language that I heard growing up because I was in it for so long, you know? You know when you grow up, you know all the idi- all the idiocracies of your father and sure. your mother. Yeah. Oh, my mother used to say, you know, you know, don't run with scissors or whatever. Well, it, that happens on the bad side too. So I don't necessarily remember the things she said. I do remember some things, and they're in my book. But I do remember, I do remember the sound, the tonality, the the flipping, the flipping of voices. The whistling, the clarity of the singing, like in the Ronald Doe case, you know, and all of those characteristics. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I realized, my God, I lived with a woman who was possessed for 13 years, 12 or 13 years. You know, it wasn't until then. And that is the grace of it. Because if I would have known back then, I would have had a heart attack. Sure. Because I was almost ready to have a heart attack as it was. Yeah. I mean, and. Believe it or not, when I went to school, I was an academic scholar. I won every award there ever was to win at school. I was in everything, the captain of the soccer team, volleyball team, badminton team, basketball team. I won every championship. I was a complete overachiever, achieving for no one, you know. But in your own way, that's how a child deals with well, it's, it's, that kind of stuff. I imagine stress. it's partially an escape, too. I mean, you'd rather be out doing yes. those things than home experiencing what you were experiencing there. Um, Absolutely. You know, it makes a lot. Was, the, was the church or any clergy ever, ever contacted? I mean, it sounds to me like other than your sister, who is older, this the whole burden of all of this fell on your shoulders in many ways. Yes, in all ways. There was no church. In fact, they were in Jehovah's Witnesses. And early on, when we first moved there, they got excommunicated because my dad was in the mafia running with Luciano Pavarotti and his brother. So he was doing nefarious things at the time, and both of my parents got excommunicated. From Jehovah's Witness? From the Jehovah's Witnesses, yes. Hmm. Yes. And I was going to ask you about that, too, because you, in the beginning of this story, you kind of started it by saying your mother became a Jehovah's Witness. Do you think that that, that transformation, converting to Jehovah's Witness, and I honestly have to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about that belief, but do you think yeah. that that was a trigger for something, or do you think maybe she already felt something happening and she thought that was going to be an answer to help her? Absolutely right. Because I, I really, I really understand. See, my mother lost her father in a very tragic accident, and she adored him. From what I'm told, I wasn't around. He he died. I was actually named after him. His name was Michele, which is Michael in Italian. Sure. And uh, he died, you know, in a train accident. He was killed on the railroad tracks, and she adored him. And I have a feeling that the entry point here was that. Her sister, who was younger, I think that they got involved in seances, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't know if there was any Ouija board or anything, but I believe, because I remember, I remember being very little and her, hearing the word seances and people talking about seances and scary stuff like that, and I think she had tried to contact her father, and that was the entry point. And I think she tried to turn to the church or the only church that was available or that she knew at the time. But uh, another interesting, uh, like, sub-story is that by the time I was seven or eight years old, a friend of hers had called her from Niagara Falls. Now, this had already started. You know, this craziness had already started. And her friend, I overheard her talking on the phone. I was hiding in the hallway. And she was saying that her friend was saying that something is following her around at nighttime and that would you please come because I'm terrified. Oh, wow. So, you know, out of the fire into the frying pan, my mother all of a sudden decided we're going to Niagara Falls. And I had heard that conversation and we went to Niagara Falls. 
And the weird thing is, I don't remember one minute of it and one minute of it coming back because I think I was, I shut off. Mm -hmm. I completely shut off. I don't remember. I remember getting in the car to go to the bus station, but I don't remember anything after that. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, I got. I have, to, I have to tell you a personal anecdote just quickly because the the encounter you had with your with your mother, where you ran out of the house, then you went back in, grabbed the phone, and brought the phone out to the porch and was trying to dial an old rotary phone uh, to get your father, and you just couldn't do it. I've had still to this day, I've had recurring nightmares. Um, and going back into my childhood, I would have these nightmares that there would be some type of emergency and I was trying to dial that damn phone and I couldn't yeah. do it because my fingers just were too nervous. I was shaking and just the act of the dialing the phone, I couldn't accomplish, uh, you know, in yeah. this terrifying moment. And I imagine that's exactly what you were going through. Yes. And I had those dreams, the same dream. And I had insomnia for 18 years. For 18 years until I finally got a grip on it, and I was able to sleep a little bit. And I had those dreams about taking a baseball bat, my mother coming at me, and I'd whack her in the head, and her head would just go sideways, and then she'd yeah. just continue to laugh and keep lunging at me. Yeah. And this would go on until I woke up. How do you and think, I had the same dream for 18 years. How do you think you survived? It was about 12 years of, of you being subjected to this. How do you think you survived physically? Uh, given the harm, it looked, sounds like she was trying to do to you, but also just a mental, mentally and emotionally. I mean, obviously it has its scars, but you survived. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did survive. But, you know, I, I really understand now how children uh, uh, deal with uh, extreme traumatic issues. You know, I've, I've you know, studied a lot on uh, post-traumatic stress. That, you know, for children, there's events that last, you know, a day, one traumatic event that something happened and a couple of minutes later it ended. There's ones that happen for weeks, and there's very few that happen for years and years. But uh, I was a, a person who loved nature, and what I did was I would go walking. This is, this is really how I – this was my outlet – I would go walking up the river for 10 miles. I would leave at 7 o'clock in the morning and come back at 9 o'clock at night. And I would walk probably 30, 40 miles. And that was something that I did. I would go on bike rides, uh, bike rides for 30, 40 miles. My legs became so, they looked like bread because they were so powerful and so muscular. And when I moved to, when I moved to California, um, I would do the same things. I would, I would live in Glendale. And I would walk, I would take a bus to Santa Monica and walk from Santa Monica all the way back into Glendale barefoot, knowing that I get glass in my feet. And that was uh, uh, a release, having the glass in your feet, having your feet cut. And I would pound my legs at nighttime. You know, when you fall down and you get hurt, you, you, you lose a tremendous amount of energy. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned that as a kid. I would beat, literally beat myself up until you get that euphoric feeling and fall asleep. And I did that for probably nine years and would do these crazy walks until my hips started popping. In my 30s, my hips started popping because I was walking these crazy 40, 50 miles a day with getting glass in my feet and not caring because it was a relief. Yeah. But interestingly enough, I was never promiscuous. I never did drugs, and I never drank. I stayed away from all of those things. So I actually, you know, suppressed it all. And the way I, I guess, dealt with it was overachieving physically. You know, I would go on these monumental, like I said, walks for going through three cities, you know, in bare feet, and then picking the glass out of my feet along the way and not caring, you know. And at the end of the day, I would be exhausted. And that's how I would do life. And when I was a kid, that's how I would do life. I'd go biking. Sometimes I would bike 20 miles to another town. In fact, I was picking apples at one time, and I was walking in the morning to a town that was 12 miles away on the highway. I would walk all the way there, pick apples for 9, 10 hours, and then walk all the way back with my shoes full of my rubber boots full of blood from the blisters on my, on my feet and yeah. do it again the next day. You know, and I I didn't care. The pain was a way of coping, 
you know yep. it was a way of coping to have that release you know you um you know one of the things that you do now as well as you talk about the paranormal i want you to separate you know the demonic possession concept from just the general paranormal stuff what are your thoughts <laughs> briefly on just general paranormal uh, discussions ghosts that kind of thing well you know i um from all because i'm so analytical and so alert uh, because of the way I grew up, I had to be, you know, like a green beret, so so to speak. I'm very, very analytical, and I study everything. Everything that I have studied about paranormal and demonology and everything, I have come to the conclusion that it's all demonology. There are no aliens. There are no, you know, good spirits. Or any, they're all bad spirits. They're all demonic. They're all here for a purpose. And uh, that has been a, a question that's been answered, uh, you know, from my research, uh, so unbalanced, which means that, you know, the evidence I found for, for that to be demons are all of those issues was, was uh, very profound, very, very profound. So if, 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 if that's the way you look at all of this, then are there angels, too? Well, yeah, there there are angels, but you know the ones that are here are the fallen angels. You know, I, I mean, I do you know lectures on on nephilim and disembodied spirits. I mean, the demon is demon, which means disembodied spirit. Well, if you have a disembodied spirit, that means you have to have a body first. Okay, so you can't be you can't be a fallen angel. So what does that leave us? That leaves us with uh, uh, the Nephilim who would die because, you know, they were half angelic, half men, you know, half human. And their spirits, there's no salvation for them, according to the Bible. There's no salvation. So they're the disembodied spirits. Even Jesus talked about this, that the spirits, they ran, they were in the pigs. And they said, they said to Jesus, you know, and Jesus said, you know, the spirits shrieked and said, uh, you know, what have you to do with us? This this is not our time of torment. Send us into those send us into those pigs, because they, uh, he had exercised a man who had you know a legion of demons in him. They wanted to go into pigs. They wanted embodiment. They're seeking embodiment. So there, there's a difference between fallen angels and demons, and there's a hierarchy involved too, just as there is on this planet with people and governments and, and, and things of this nature. And that that's a whole lecture, but those are some of the things that I speak on using the the uh, my experience as the introduction to who these entities are, what do they want, where are they from, what's the game plan, what's the end game plan of all of this, you know? And those are the conclusions that I have come to uh, very profoundly, very profoundly with very little evidence against. Uh, I can't believe looking at the clock how much time has gone by already. We're almost out of time. But um, the, your book, Devil, Devil Take the Hindmost, how would you describe it, Michael? Is it is it just a, a simple telling of your story, which is not a simple story? Uh, is, it a, is it a self-help book? Is it a warning to people? Is it, some, is, is, it a, is it therapy for somebody else who might be going through something similar to what you went through? How would you describe it? I would describe it uh, exactly. In fact, when at the beginning of the book, I describe it. You know, I say that this is my eyewitness account of my life. It, it includes, it's filled with laughter. It's filled with fun. It's filled with sadness. It's filled with terror. It's got all of those things. It's all of those things that make up who I am today. I, I mean, the book is very ADD. My editor went crazy. <laughs> she, she had to edit, I think, maybe 180 pages because I, I uh, kept repeating myself and in lines and, you know, extending sentences. But, uh, yeah, that's really what it is. It's, it's an eyewitness account of my life. And every word of it is true. If I, I did not plan to come into this without saying that every word is, is true, that's the way it has to be. Because I started this, that this was a legacy for my kids, that my kids could say, hey, this, this is what happened to your dad, or this is what happened to your grandfather, you know. So, you know, there's nothing embellished in it whatsoever. I speak the truth. 
and it, it's 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 uh, blanc et noir. You know, it's black and white. You know, I'm from French Canada, so yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what it is. It's an eyewitness account. You know, it's got everything: laughter, happiness, joy, and all the bad stuff. At this point, Michael, do you think your mother's at peace? No, no, I do not, because she would even tell me. She would even tell me in lucid moments, which were far between, in lucid moments, she'd say to me, they're, they're coming into me through the back of my spine, running up my spine into my head. And then she'd go off crazy. But she would look at me. And when she'd look at me, she looked at me with help. Help me. Yeah. Help me. Yeah. But I was a kid. What could I possibly do? And And then, you know, she would snap right back into... The craziness, you know. So you know, it's so sad, and I see that in a lot of people. People that are demonically possessed, you know, they might have asked for it because they invited it in, but that doesn't mean they want it. And you know, I mean, people make mistakes, you know. And and so many people, I saw her suffer. Ultimately, that's what happened. Yeah, we all suffered. Everybody on the whole block suffered. What do you, you know, wish? The most. What do you wish, Michael? What do you wish you'd done differently? Looking back at it, um, I I don't think there's anything I would do differently, or wish I'd done anything differently because of the person I am today. I mean, you know, it shaped me for all the wrong reasons and all the right reasons, and I I you know it made me in a very alert person. I'm very analytical, and I was like you know the movie A Beautiful Mind. That was me. I was, you know, remembering license plates and everybody in every room, you know, thinking whether they were a threat or not. That's in my book, too. It was exhausting, you know, but I would. But now today, I'm an extremely compassionate person and I try to do everything right. Love is my is my force. You know, that is what I try to love everybody. I try to do everything through love and let my children be an example to my children and my grandchildren. The book is called Devil Take the Hindmost. Michael, where can people find it? Uh, it's available on Amazon uh, Kindle. If you have an unlimited Kindle, it's actually free, uh, but you can find it there, and you don't have to have a Kindle to download it. Um, you actually... Uh, it's available on three or four different apps, which is when you find the book and you click on it, it shows you there that there's apps that you can download it on your phone. Now, I happen to notice uh, in doing a little prep for the show that there are a couple other books with the same title. So you need to look for Devil Take the Hindmost by Michael Galliardi. Yes. Make sure we put the yes. author in there. But uh, what an amazing story, Michael. Thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight, telling the story, being so honest about it. Uh, because clearly, even though you've been able to process it and you've turned your experiences into a force of good, it clearly affects you still. It clearly yeah. is part of your life, uh, and it always will be. So I can imagine while you you get some uh, benefit from telling the story, it's also probably a little painful to tell it. Yes, yes. But thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. It's been It's been wonderful. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.